And when you think of July 4th, what do you think of? Fireworks. And the church fireworks stand. Thank you for all that helped out our youth. Freedom. Parades. 1776, going back to the birth of our nation. Independence. All kinds of things come to mind, right? We had some people that were going with the whole freedom theme that came to the stand and were like, it's Freedom Day. I shouldn't have to pay sales tax. We're like, well, it's not Freedom Day for us in that sense. We honor, we we render under Caesar what is Caesar's. So we still charge sales tax. But freedom means all kinds of things, but... It is about going back to our roots as a country, right? And, and how we are enjoying the freedom to even be in this room, to sing and worship and to talk about God's Word without fear of being carted off to jail, without fear, as many in this world today, many believers are losing their lives for the Gospel. And so we remember those things. As we come to our text this morning in Joshua, and we're going to do 10 through 12, actually the second half of 10 through 12, so two and a half chapters this morning, so about the picnic. No. <laughs> we are coming to the end of the campaigns that represented their, their start as a nation, that represented God giving them the land, giving them the ability to be Israel. So this is sort of their independence. Their, their gift from God. And we come to these two and a half chapters and we're going to see now that action speeds up. Up until now, we've been taking some time on each story, right? We took some time on the conquest of Jericho. We took a couple chapters on Ai because of the little sin issue and the defeat and then the conquest of Ai. We um, talked about the Gibeonites and then the southern coalition coming up against Gibeon and Joshua and his army going to protect Gibeon and wiping out the southern coalition. But now we get to where the action starts to speed up. Instead of one battle per chapter, we get one battle per verse, and sometimes two and three battles per verse. And so we're going to to move through it fairly quickly. As we come to a text like this, we need to remember a few things. Because it's easy, isn't it, when you're reading through the Bible and the reading plans? Sometimes you get to the long lists... And sometimes it's like, oh man, got to read this list. Sometimes it's like, oh yes, I can skim this and be done in two minutes. Right? Sometimes we think that. So how do we study passages where there's long lists? And we have a number of those in today's, um, today's passage. Next week, Pastor Andrew will be sharing the allotment of the land, which again is a number of lists. How do we approach that realizing this is God's Word? Even the lists are God's Word. They are given for our instruction, for our correction, for reproof. They are given for our edification. And some of the ways that that we we begin to look at the list with some meaning is not to skip them, but to actually study them. And some things this morning that I'd like you to look for, look for repeated phrases. Whenever you come to a list, repeated phrases are phrases that the Holy Spirit wants to pound home. Now, we may think after two or three repeated phrases, I got that. And I was telling Jeremiah this morning, it's sort of, as as I study this, it's like, okay, it's, it's over and over and over again, some of the repeated phrases in these two and a half chapters. But I have to remember, it's the Holy Spirit that inspired that repetition. It's the Holy Spirit that put it in there, probably because God knows us as people and that we forget those things a little bit easier. And so look for repeated things. 
not to, to get frustrated at them, but to learn from them. And whenever you see it repeated, think, this is really important. Also, as you go through lists, look for exceptions to the list. And, and we'll, we'll bring out a few of those this morning. When, when it's the same, 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 different, same, 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 that different is probably there for a reason. And it's a le- another lesson that God wants us to learn. The other thing as we go to these lists, we need to remember that these are real places with real people. And sometimes we can go through a list, like the first list, we're going to look at the Southern Campaign, and we get cities like Makedah and Libna and, and um, Lachish. You guys all know where those are? No, no, no. So it can just sort of go like this, right? Now, what if the text said, and Canada was invading the United States? Sorry for Canada fans. And they took Fountain Valley. And they took Anaheim. And they took Orange. And they're at the border of Garden Grove. Does that list mean something different now? Okay. Keep in mind, these are real people, real places, and we need to start reading it, putting our minds in, in their place, putting ourselves in their place. This is their neighborhood we're talking about, their cities. And so this morning, I hope you like maps, because we're going to use a lot of maps to try to help us put ourselves in their place. So you ready to start? Ron's tour of Israel. Okay, turn with me to Joshua chapter 10, verse 29. Joshua chapter 10, verse 29. And we continue the story that Pastor Andrew talked about last week where the coalition um, came up against Gibeon. Joshua defeated them, pursued them down to Makedah, and killed the five kings, right? That's where we left off. So that's where we're going to pick it up. What does Joshua do next? And we're going to see that he uses that battle as an opportunity to launch into a southern campaign to completely take the southern portion of Israel. Pretty smart, actually pretty brilliant, because the army has now come out. The army has been destroyed. This is the chance to take the southern part of Israel. Um, The cities are largely undefended. It also splits Israel into two halves. Remember, they came into the middle portion of Israel by the Jordan and and with Jericho, and they crossed into and then went up into the mountains of Ai and Bethel. Now they're going to take the the bottom half of that um, in these verses. So let me put up a map. Helps if I turn it on. There we go. So this is a a map that you saw last week. And we're going to highlight the cities as we talk about them. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on each one. Listen for repetition. Listen for themes. Verse 29. Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Makedah to Libna and fought against Libna. So the circle starts at Makedah and we add Libna. He's going to roughly go from a north to south um, strategy, taking the cities as he goes. And the Lord gave it also and its king into the hand of Israel. And he struck it with the edge of the sword and every person in it. He left none remaining in it. And he did to its king as he had done to the king of Jericho. Then Joshua and all of Israel with him passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it. Lachish is one of the places we took the group to that came to Israel. And so you can picture, again, a high tell with, with uh, um, some walls and a pretty significant strategic place as it guarded one of the valleys up into the mountains and into Jerusalem. So they passed on from Libna to Lachish and laid siege to it and fought against it. 
And the Lord gave Lachish into the hand of Israel, and he captured it on the second day and struck it with the edge of the sword. It's a little little thing there on the second day. But it, it, historically and in other passages, we know that at other times, it took much, much longer periods of time to capture Lachish. It was that kind of a stronghold. And so the fact that two days and it was done proves that God's hand is working here. He captured it on the second day, struck it with the edge of the sword, and every person in it, as he had done in Libna. Then Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish. This is a little bit different, and it's important to note, Gezer's up at the top there. Do you see that there? Do they go to Gezer? What does the text say? No, the king came. The king sees what's going on, and he's watching Fountain Valley and Anaheim and Orange fall, and he's like, I better go down and stop them because Gezer can't be far behind. So he comes down with his army and fights Joshua down in the south where Joshua is on this campaign. So Horam, king of Gezer, came up to help Lachish, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. Are you seeing some patterns here? Then Joshua and all Israel with him passed on from Lachish to Eglon, a little bit further south, and they laid siege to it and fought against it. And they captured it on that day. Same day, this one. And struck it with the edge of the sword. And he devoted every person in it to destruction that day, as he had done to Lachish. Then Joshua and all Israel with him went up from Eglon to Hebron. So you have a little bit east there is is Hebron. And they fought against it and captured it and struck it with the edge of the sword and its king and its towns and every person in it. He left none remaining as he had done in Eglon and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. Then Joshua and all Israel with him turned back to Debir and fought against it. And that's down in the south. And he captured it with its king and all its towns. And they struck them with the edge of the sword and devoted to destruction every person in it. He left none remaining, just as he had done to Hebron and to Libna and its king. So he did to Debir and its king. So we have the southern campaign, these seven cities. A couple of notes just before we get into to seeing some of the, um, the applications out of this. Seven cities are mentioned here. Seven is a number that's often used in Scripture for completeness or perfection. We know from chapter 12, just two chapters later, there were at least four more cities in this region taken. So the goal here isn't to say every city that's taken. That'll happen in chapter 12. But he's painting a picture of complete destruction or complete victory. God gave them this whole region into their hands because God is faithful. And so here we have Machedah, Libna, Lachish, Gezer, Eglon, Hebron, and Debir. But others were taken. But this, you can see right there that that really gives you a picture of that area. One other thing to note is Jerusalem is not taken. The king was killed last week in, in, in that passage, but Jerusalem is not taken. In fact, that's going, not going to be taken until a number of years later. Three of these cities, Lachish, Eglon, and Hebron, were already uh, the kings and the armies were already killed in the story last year. So just some of the, the interesting tidbits that we see from, from this area. Let's read the, the next three verses, which give us a summary of the southern campaign, and then we'll pull out some things out of it. Verse 40, So Joshua struck the whole land, the hill country, the Negev, and the lowland, and the slopes, and all their kings. 
He left none remaining, but devoted to destruction all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. So verse 40 gives us a region summary. And we've been talking about about some of those regions. He struck the whole land. And you have the hill country, which is the mountainous region, which would be coming down, actually here we go, Jerusalem, Bethlehem, this is the mountainous region. And then down here we get to the lowlands, or, or the, the sometimes some, some translations call it the lowlands, it's the low rolling here, hills, the Svela that we talk about, it's leading up into the hill country. Um, the Negev is down in the south, off the map, down here where this orange fabric is. It's the um, desert down, down south. The idea here is that everything was taken. And so he gives some regions that really cover the whole land. In verse 41, we get some boundaries. And Joshua struck them from Kadesh Barnea as far as Gaza. Kadesh Barnea being to the east, Gaza being to the left or to, to the west. Interestingly enough, they did not take Gaza. They went up to Gaza. Is that still an issue today? It's the Gaza Strip. And all the country of Goshen, this is not the Goshen that the Israelites were in when Egypt. Um, we don't exactly know where it is, but they think it's in the, the southern region of the Negev, as far as Gibeon, which is what we talked about last week up near the top of that map. And Joshua captured all these kings in their land at one time because the Lord God of Israel fought, fought for Israel. And I would underline that phrase. It's the key phrase to the southern campaign. Because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. Okay, that concludes the southern portion of our tour. Winded yet? What did you see there? What were some of the repeated phrases that you saw? We'll be a little more interactive this morning. The Lord gave. First two cities it mentions it, and then the summary, what I said was the key verse, also said it. The Lord gave. And that is such a key phrase because it refers to God's faithfulness. And in your key points, we'll go out of order a little bit. It's the second key point, be there. God is faithful doing His work through obedient servants. God is faithful doing His work through obedient servants. Look at even verse 42. And Joshua captured all these kings and their land at one time. That's a key phrase. And then the reason, because the Lord God of Israel fought for Israel. And the at one time is talking about this was one campaign. This was one tour of duty. And so they, they, they take out the southern coalition and they go to these cities and they defeat them really in this text in very short order. It was almost too easy. Why was it so easy? Because the Lord gave. It wasn't easy because of their amazing strength, because of their chariots and horses, which they didn't have, as we'll see in the next, next chapter. It was easy because God was fighting the fight. And we see His power. Just another interesting thing as we talk about the Lord giving, how many losses did we see in this section? None. What? Except for the enemy, that's right. <laughs> the enemy, everyone was lost. For Israel, for God, 7-0. and It's a pretty good streak. It gets better. But we see God's faithfulness. We see His power. See, when we are doing God's work, by being God's people, we see God's results. When we are doing God's work, 
By being God's people, we see God's results. Now the key there is, are we participating in God's work? Are we being God's people? Which will be the other repeated theme that we see. Because when we are, when we are obedient in that way, then we see God do His work. What's another repeated phrase that you saw? What was that? Just as they had done. Okay, so he's, he's reaffirming something there. What is he reaffirming? Each time he says, as they did in Jericho. And he, he usually uses the city before. As they did in Lachish. And what is he reaffirming? What did they do? They left none remaining. And this goes back to our discussion of devoted things, or harem is the Hebrew word for it. God said what about the cities in, in Canaan? You will destroy... Every living thing. Everything that breathes. A couple of times he gives them an exception and they, they can take some, some bounty from the livestock. But every human being is to be destroyed because they are devoted to destruction. They have rebelled against God. The time of their iniquity has come. And now they are under God's judgment and actually God's faithful judgment. See, the first point was God gave this to the Israelites. That shows His faithfulness but also the fact that the Canaanites were destroyed shows his faithfulness and his righteousness and his justice because God cannot allow sin to go unchecked. And he will not. That's a sobering fact. But what we see with, the, with Joshua's army is in every city the point is made, he left none remaining, and then as he did in the prior city. Just, just let me read some of it. In verse 30, with the edge of the sword and every person in it, he left none remaining. In verse 32, with the edge of the sword and every person in it, as he had done in Libna. In verse 33, and Joshua struck him and his people until he left none remaining. In verse 35, and he devoted every person in it to destruction that day, as he had done in Lachish. In verse 37, and its kings and its towns and every person in it, he left none remaining, as he had done to Eglon, and devoted it to destruction and every person in it. In verse 39, devoted to destruction, every person in it, he left none remaining. In verse 40, he left none remaining, but devoted to destruction, all that breathed, just as the Lord God of Israel commanded. Sense a pattern? Every city it's mentioned. It's repetitive. If we're not careful, it can become boring. The point is, they obeyed God. They obeyed God. That's, that's really vital after the whole issue with Jericho and Achan. Joshua displayed true obedience. A couple things we see about, uh, if we had to define true obedience, what is it in this, in this passage? True obedience is consistent. Every time he devoted things for destruction and wiped out people. Are you an obedient person if you're inconsistent with your obedience? No, no. If, if someone came to me and said, you know, I, I'm cheating on my wife, but it's okay because it's only two days out of the week. Five days I'm being faithful. Would any wife appreciate that in here? No, the guy's a jerk. He's sinning. He, he, he's not being obedient to God's commands. And what we see here is Joshua learned the lesson, and the people learned the lesson, and in every city they're faithful to God's Word. So true obedience is consistent, The second thing there is true obedience is complete. Is complete. 
They didn't just leave some people. They, they completely obeyed God, fully executing His commands. In trying to teach our kids about obedience, we, we have three things that are part of obedience in our home. Obedience is always immediate. We use the phrase obey without delay. Sort of rhymes. We have some fun with it. Now go do it. Um, obey without delay. Obedience must be complete or it must be um, exactly what we've said, doing everything that we've said, and it must be with a good attitude. None of this, okay, I'll go clean my room. No, no, that's not obedience. Because it's not just the actions, it's the attitude. So those are the three things in our home that we're trying to teach our kids of what, what obedience includes. And here we see the complete obedience, the consistent obedience. It's not obedience without those things. So those are two of the key points that we see in this passage. A couple of, uh, one other note that I want to make. At the end you see in verse 43, Then Joshua returned and all Israel with him to the camp at Gilgal. That, that helps us understand what's coming in the book of Joshua and actually the beginning of Judges as well. They conquered the land, but they did not possess the land right now. Does that make sense? The difference makes sense? They all went back to base camp. They left these cities alone. And so what you have is a story of breaking the back of the resistance, not completely wiping out the resistance. Now, they completely wiped it out wherever they found it. So they completely obeyed God, but that doesn't mean they went to every tent in every rural area. In fact, you have this whole army moving through this region. There's evidence that we see of later verses that some people scattered. We have a, a group that went to Gaza and, and some other places, and they probably repopulated some of these cities. They just didn't have the fortifications or the army anymore. In fact, the second half of Joshua is going to be about possessing the land where the tribes were then called to go take ownership of these places. So later when you see in God's Word, and there were still people living there, that's not an error in God's Word. That's not a contradiction in God's Word. They didn't possess the land at this point. They broke the back of the resistance and went back to, to Gilgal to do the northern campaign. That makes sense? Because never be afraid of, of asking questions, well, it looks like these verses contradict each other. Ask the question, research it, talk about it, because God's Word is completely without error. We don't have to be afraid of questions like that. It's worth looking up and doing a little bit of research. So like I said, today is more of a tour and a history lesson. That gives you the southern campaign. So far, so good? Okay, let's move to the northern campaign, chapter 11. I'm going to put up another graphic here. Oh, we'll get to that. I'll, I'll leave that up there. Um, chapter 11, verse 1. When Jabin, king of Hatzor, heard of this, he sent to Jobab, king of Madon, and to the king of Shimron, and to the king of Oxshoph. That one's a little bit harder. Let me stop there for a minute. Hotsor is in the north. Okay? And just like Pastor Andrew talked about last week, they're getting reports in from the battle. And the north, Hotsor is actually the, the largest city in the north. And this is a picture of Hotsor from the north. If you look on uh, above, up here is the Sea of Galilee. It's about 10 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. This is the main fortification of Hotsor, but there also was a lower city. There was a moat. And this was a city that was roughly about 200 acres. Keep in mind, Jericho was about 8 acres. Okay, so this is 25 times the size of Jericho. It was the capital city in the north, probably from, from what we read a little bit later, the ruling city in the north. 
So the king of Hatzor is hearing these reports come in, and he hears the south has fallen. Not just one or two cities, the entire south has fallen. And now he's getting worried. Just like we saw with the king of Jerusalem last week, as he gets a coalition together, Hatzor now is going to get a coalition of everyone he knows. He goes through his address book, he calls everybody. He says, we need to wipe out this threat. He's scared. It would be like Chuck, I don't know if Chuck's in here, Chuck um, and Elaine. It would be like if we were conquering um, Glen Street. <laughs> and, you, and Chuck got report in that the Hoisington's house has fallen. Okay, not quite on Glen Street, but right next to Glen Street. The Plotz's home has fallen. The Bessie home has fallen, sorry. The Ruggles home has fallen. What's Chuck thinking? I'm next. I need to call all my neighbors and we need to stop this. Okay, so that's what's happening in the story of chapter 11. So this is Hatzor. We get to a map here, and I've highlighted Hatzor there. Um, just uh, the yellow's not really on the map. That's just to let us know where Hatzor is. And some of the places that he, he gathers, you have Madan, you have Shimron, Akshaf. So you see a pretty wide area there. He gets to two, and it just summarizes, and to the kings who are in the northern hill country. That's roughly probably here. It's, it's the, the mountainous region, but to the north. Could be a little bit further north, but he just takes any king in this region that will help. And then to the Arabah, south of Chinaroth, which is the Sea of Galilee, another name for it. And the, the Arabah is the Rift Valley that we've been talking about, where the Jordan River runs through. So you never thought you were coming for a geography lesson. And so we get all the kings there and all the kings there. What are you starting to see? This is a pretty big area, right? He, he really is getting whoever he can. It goes on. In the lowland, which is the, the Shephelah, um, which comes here, goes down a little bit more beyond the map. And so he, he gets anyone from there. And then um, Nafath Dor on the west. And we know that Dor is the city over here. Nafath Dor is probably this whole region, the coastal region. To the Canaanites in the east and the west. To the Amorites, to the Hittites, to the Perizzites, and to the Jebusites in the hill country. Jebusites are probably southern hill country, more near where Jerusalem was. And the Hivites under Hermon. Mount Hermon is up at the top up here. This is Mount Hermon. You have the Valley of Mizpah there. And, um, there's the southern Canaanites. And I don't think... I, oh, there, I did put one in up there for Mount Hermon. And they came out with all their troops, a great horde in number, like the sand is on the seashore, with very many horses and chariots. We're going to see that that is about where they go. And all these kings joined their forces and came and encamped together at the waters of Merom to fight against Israel. This is a key battle. The entire north is coming together. This isn't just five kings. This is far more than five kings. And do you catch how it described the, the group that's there at the, ready to attack Israel? Beyond number. Like the sand that is on the seashore throws in the fact very many horses and chariots. Horses and chariots were like the tanks of their day. Israel didn't have those. And so they were, they were facing a vast force with far superior weaponry. At this point, we should be saying, what's going to happen? This is a huge army. So much time is given to this description. I don't know if God can handle this one. 
I, I don't, I, maybe Joshua should turn around. Maybe he shouldn't fight this fight. Let's only fight the winnable ones. But God said, go. This land is the land I am giving you. And we see a dilemma here, which is why I think so much time is spent on this force. A dilemma, will Joshua still obey? When circumstances are against him, when there's risk, will Joshua still obey? And isn't that the question for us in obedience? It's easy to obey when things are good, right? It's easy to obey when we see the benefit. Do we obey when we don't see the benefit? Do we... Do we still obey when there's considerable personal risk? When we'll lose face over some issue and lose our reputation? Or when when people will come against us if we still obey? And that's what this is setting up. And in verse 6 it goes on, And the Lord said to Joshua, Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. You shall hamstring their horses and burn their chariots with fire. Hamstringing the horses is taking and cutting the tendon behind the, the, the back knees so they can't be used in warfare anymore. And so he's destroying their ability to, to wage war. But it's interesting that the Lord comes to Joshua and said, Still go. I am still God. I am still the one fighting the battle for you. Still go and do my work and obey. So then we see what happens in verse 7. So Joshua and all his warriors came suddenly against them by the waters of Moron and and fell upon them. And so we see Joshua has made this march, probably a four or five day march, and and the Lord came and spoke to him the the day before they actually arrived. And it's a sneak attack. They come up on them suddenly. This coalition doesn't expect anyone to attack them there. They're right in the center of safe northern territory. They have all their chariots, although this region... It really sort of nullified the the value of chariots because it was in the mountainous region and and chariots are a little harder to to use there. And Joshua comes on them suddenly, a sneak attack. They're not ready for it. But it wasn't just his brilliant strategy that won the war. In verse 8, And the Lord gave them into the hand of Israel, who struck them and chased them as far as the great Sidon, Mizrafoth, Maim, and eastward as far as the valley of Mizpah. Just again, to give us some geography so we understand these names that we, we don't understand here. This is uh, Mizrath, Maine. This is Sidon. So they probably came here and came up here. Some think they may have come through here and split here and here, chasing people. And then another group came west, east and came up here, either crossing the Jordan um, and going across or coming up here. And then they came to the Valley of Mizpah. What we see is some people are running home. They're scared. And Joshua follows them and obeys completely. And they struck them until he left none remaining. And Joshua did to them just as the Lord said to him. He hamstrung their horses and burned their chariots with fire. It's interesting. A couple thoughts out of this story. Very similar story to what Pastor Andrew shared last week in the South. But one of the thoughts, and I echo what he said, God's promise to help them didn't make them sit on the couch and watch. It actually motivated them to get up and obey God and fight the battle. The same is true for us. When we are doing God's work in His way and obeying Him, God has promised that His hand will be part of that. 
And so why not get up and fight if you know you're on the winning team? And we see here a combination of God's faithfulness, his, his fight for them, and their obedience. And their obedience was to get up and be part of it. We see the same two themes, don't we? God is faithful doing his work. In verse 6, that was the, the nature of that promise. Do not be afraid of them, for tomorrow at this time I will give over all of them slain to Israel. And we see there the added idea of do not be afraid. God's faithfulness should always be an antidote for our fear. For our, for our inability to rise up to action. See, if it's up to me, then yeah, fear is probably appropriate. I should be very wary of going forward. But if it's God that's doing the work, then I should join in wholeheartedly. Wholeheartedly. God is faithful doing His work. The other aspect of that is he's doing his work with obedient servants. And we see that second same theme. It's the same as what we saw in in chapter 10. God wants obedience. But we add another aspect of obedience here. We add um, obedience is consistent. Obedience is complete. Here we're to obey regardless of the circumstances or risk. Obedience obeys regardless of the circumstances or risk. God says, obey me. Trust me, because I am faithful. We read on to the the rest of the story, 10 through 15. And Joshua turned back at that time and captured Hatzor and struck its king with the sword. For Hatzor formerly was the head of all those kingdoms. Formerly, because it was just destroyed. And they struck with the sword all who were in it, devoting them to destruction. There was none left that breathed. And we see the obedience again. And he burned Hatzor with fire. And all the cities of those kings and all their kings Joshua captured and struck them with the edge of the sword, devoting them to destruction, just as Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. So we see him go back to the capital, Hatzor, and not only destroy everybody, that city they burned. It's one of only three cities that we have record burning. Um, Jericho, Ai, and now Hatzor. Interestingly enough, as they've been um, doing digs at Hatzor, they've found a burn layer roughly about the time of the conquest, that they're not finding in other cities. And I love it when, when recent discoveries just go right along with what the Bible says is true, because it is true. The other cities, they don't burn because God had promised back in Exodus and then in Deuteronomy that He would give them houses they did not build, that He would give them cities they did not construct to live in. And so the other ones, they don't burn, they just destroy the inhabitants because then when that land is given to the, the nation, they have a place to live. Verse 13, But none of the cities that stood on mounds did Israel burn, except Hatzor alone. That Joshua burned. And all the spoil of these cities and the livestock the people of Israel took for their plunder. But every person they struck with the edge of the sword until they had destroyed them. And they did not leave any who breathed, just as the Lord had commanded Moses' his servant. So Moses commanded Joshua, and so Joshua did. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. What an incredible statement about Joshua in verse 15. Moses commanded Joshua, and Joshua did it. He left nothing undone of all that the Lord had commanded Moses. And when it got to the end of my life, I'd love for people to be able to say that about me. He left nothing undone that God asked him to do. 
I would love for every person in this room and our church to be able to say that. We left nothing undone that God asked us to do. And so we see Joshua's character here as a leader. See, a good leader is always an obedient leader. When God chooses leaders to lead His cause, He's looking for people that first and foremost are men and women of God that are going to obey Him and follow Him. That was the most important strategy, if you will, that Joshua could have was to simply obey God. And the same is true of us. Many of you are leading different ministries, different things here at Village. The most important thing for you is are you in obedience to God? Are you walking with God? There's a reason why it's been repeated some 20 times already, if not more. That's how important obedience is. God uses servants that are obedient. So we see those themes. God's faithfulness, he is doing the work. Joshua's obedience reminding us that we need to be obey completely. And then in verses 16 through 23, the rest of this chapter, we see the conclusion of the entire conquest. The conclusion of the entire conquest. And, and the writer here switches to a view of everything that's been happening in Israel. And I'll read these verses. So Joshua took all the land, the hill country and all the Negev and all the land of Goshen and the lowland and the Arabah and the hill country of Israel and its lowland. We've talked about all those things. He's giving basically every region of the land. From Mount Halak, which is in the south, which rises towards Sarah as far as Baal-Gad in the valley of Lebanon below Mount Hermon. That's all the way to the north. And he captured all their kings and struck them and put them to death. Joshua made war a long time with those kings. South, we saw a really quick conquest. What do you see about the north here? It took a lot longer. Joshua had to be faithful. That's key in the, the, the point about obedience. The fourth point about obedience is obedience takes sacrifice. Obedience takes sacrifice. When you look at all these campaigns, there were probably about seven years of conquest. Maybe that puts it into perspective. We, we get that from Caleb, Caleb's life. He was about 78 at the start of conquest. And we know that he was 85 when he conquered and took his land. Pastor Andrew will talk about that next week. So um, gives us challenges when we're 85. We're to go fight. Take land. No, okay, no. We'll, we'll talk about that. But obedience takes sacrifice. Faithfulness over a long period of time. I was reminded of that this week. And on Tuesday night, I went to a city hall meeting and a number of residents from right over here on Emory's were there. And um, after we had talked about the issue at hand, afterwards they were talking to me and um, they said, oh, you're, you're from Village Bible Church, aren't you? I'm like, yeah. Oh, you, you guys are the fin- friendly church that really cares about us. I'm like, really? Yeah, we, we want to be, be a good neighbor and care about our community. And they said, yeah, every Christmas, I, we love it when your kids come around and bring us the gift. And that's been about six years we've been doing that. First couple of years, very little response. But now, even things like that, we're making inroads in the community. And some are open to the gospel. Some have heard the gospel. Some, maybe they aren't open to the gospel, but they're willing to send their kids to hear about the gospel. We'll start there. Fine, I'm good with that. But because of obedience that's been sacrificial over a period of time, 
God is using that in our community. Joshua made war a long time with those kings. He was in it for the long haul. It wasn't just one and done. But his obedience was as long as God wanted him to do it. There was not a city that made peace with the people of Israel except the Hivites, the inhabitants of Gibeon. They took them all in battle. For it was the Lord's doing to harden their hearts that they should come against Israel in battle in order that they should be devoted to destruction and should receive no mercy but be destroyed just as the Lord commanded Moses. And we see here a very similar wording to Pharaoh when God hardened Pharaoh's heart. And with Pharaoh, we we see this aspect of sometimes it's referred to that he hardened his own heart. Sometimes it's referred to that God hardened his heart. And, And really both are true because when someone is stubborn and resistant to God, their own heart is hardened. But then every time God acts, every time he works, every time his holiness and his truth is on display, it hardens their heart even more. And we see God's sovereignty here because the Canaanites had had their chance. We saw in Genesis 15, God said, Abraham, you'll get this land later when their sin has come to completion. And now we're at the later point and we're, we're, we're in the, the judgment part for the Canaanites. And that's hard. It's a hard concept to get. Some, sometimes this is called a judicial hardening because the time of mercy had come and gone and now it's the time of judgment. But we face the same thing. If we don't know God and we stand before the judgment seat of Christ, that's not the time that we're going to get to make a decision for God. That's the time where God, the righteous, just judge, will dis- be dispensing the, the penalty. And that's the time we have of the Canaanites here. And it's a hard concept, but it should make us take sin seriously. And you have one final story, 21 through 23. And Joshua came at that time and cut off the Anakim from the hill country, from Hebron, from Debir, from Anab, from all the hill country of Judah. The Anakim, if you remember, the Anakites were the giants of the land. Some writings have them at eight to nine feet tall. Goliath was quite possibly one of those. And this is an illustration of what I was talking about. They wiped them out, devoted to destruction their cities, there was none of the Anakim left in the land of the people of Israel. Only in Gaza, in Gath, and in Ashdod did some remain. And so they fled to these other cities that Israel didn't take at this point in time. We're going to see Caleb come up against them next week. So Joshua took the whole land according to all that the Lord had spoken to Moses. You see obedience again. And Joshua gave it for an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal allotments. And the land had rest from war. And that's the verse that summarizes the first 12 chapters and looks forward to the second half of the book. What's interesting is if you remember the spies 40 years earlier, 45 years earlier, they went into the land and spied out the land. And do you remember why they said they couldn't take the land? the giants in the land, the Anakim in the land. And so this is just a great, a great example of, of great writing and the Holy Spirit inspiring it. He ends the story with the conquest of saying, oh yeah, the people you were afraid of, they're completely wiped out because God is faithful. 
he fights. He would have fought 45 years ago if you had obeyed. But in this case, Joshua obeyed. And so back then, you had the same God that was faithful, waiting to take them into the land, but disobedience kept them from seeing his hand. And now you have that same God completely wipe out the, the inhabitants of the land because they were obedient, because they were faithful to him. What an amazing way to end. So many times we fear things we don't need to fear because we forget that God is the one fighting the fight. In Pilgrim's Progress, some of you are studying that. John Bunyan describes Christian's approach to Palace Beautiful where he was hoping to get lodging. And he begins to walk down a very narrow passage and, and he gets there and he sees two lions on the way. And Bunyan adds parenthetically, the lions were chained, but he saw not the chains. And that's frequently where we're at. We see lions on the way. We see, I don't know if God can handle that. Man, that army to the north is too big for God. The, the Anakites are too big for God. And God's like, I have the chains. I'm in control. What are you afraid of? Our God is greater. Our God is stronger. He is faithful. He is above all else. May we not forget that. I'm going to end. I'm not going to read chapter 12. It's, it's, a, it's a list. I would invite you to read it, but I want to, I want to describe what it meant and put up the next map. In chapter 12, it's sort of what we would call the appendix. It's the appendix that celebrates God's faithfulness. And it, it's the raw data that supports everything that's happened in the first 11 chapters. And so it, it simply is a list of every city that was taken. The first part of the list, verses 1 through 6, was Moses taking the, the cities on the eastern side, the Transjordan over here. And so it lists those. And then it goes, starting in verse 7, to the kings conquered by Joshua, and it lists 31 kings conquered by Joshua. Incidentally, there was still only one loss, that at Ai, because of the people's unfaithfulness, not because of God's unfaithfulness. So Joshua was 31 and 1. And the one was because of his own error, not God's. And so we get this list. And just look at this map. I think I put the map in your notes as well. These are the 31 cities that Joshua took. How spread out are they? The entire land. You should look at that and say, wow, God promised Abraham, the land you're walking in, I will give you. This is the answer to that promise. God is faithful. In fact, for us, we don't know the cities, but when Israel would read this, this would scream, Yahweh is faithful. Yahweh is faithful. He kept his word. He gave us the land. Let's obey him. I think about that with some of God's promises to us as he sends us out into the world to be his witnesses, he says, I will never leave you nor forsake you. He says, fear not. He's promised us a comforter, the Holy Spirit living inside of us. He's promised us in 1 Corinthians that he will not give us more than we can bear, but he will help us. He's promised to reveal his word to us, to guide us. But I think most significantly, he's promised us salvation if we repent and put our faith in him. And Yahweh is faithful. We see it on every page of God's Word. In the story today, it screams it. 
And so when he says, I will give you eternal life if you trust in me, he is faithful and he will do it. And in fact, he's the one that did the work. He sent his son to die on the cross in our place to pay the penalty for our sins. A salvation we could not earn, we could not somehow achieve on our own, but because of his son's death on the cross, he has done the work for us. And he says, believe in me. Follow me. And he is faithful to provide that salvation. Let's pray. Lord God, our Father, we thank you for your sacrifice on the cross. We thank you for this opportunity to remember, to constantly remind ourselves of the story of the cross, your death, your resurrection, the incredible gift of salvation that you promised us and that you have been faithful to fulfill. But I pray right now that our hearts would be turned to you. If there's anyone here that has sin in their lives, that heart, their heart is not turned to you, that they are not ready to take communion, I pray that right now that sin would be confessed and your forgiveness would come and you would cleanse them so they would be ready to take communion. Lord, I pray if there's anyone in this room that doesn't know you, that today they would say, I want to follow the God who is faithful, who is true, who is faithful to those that obey Him, who is faithful to punish sin. And I want to give my life to Him. Lord God, thank You for Your sacrifice that we could not earn, that we do not deserve. In Your holy name, Amen.